Earlier this week, the United Kingdom asked for someone to step forward to become a minister for loneliness. Mother Teresa said that loneliness is the leprosy of our modern world. It is an epidemic and it is continuing to grow. Back in 1945, there was a physician who lived in Austria who went to go investigate the health and the well-being of an orphanage. He went to this particular orphanage and what he found there astounded him. This orphanage had the highest level of potential medical care in the sense of it was the most hygienic place that he had ever seen. They had gone to great lengths to make sure that no germs could be shared among the children. But in order to do that, they had made sure that the children had very little contact with one another or with one of the adults. And the results were catastrophic. 37% of the children under the age of two didn't live. It seems that we need human contact in order to survive. And so David Brooks wrote it this way. He said, it turns out that empathic physical contact is essential for life. Intimate touch engages the emotions and wires the fibers of the brain together. But if the power of loving touch is astounding, the power of invasive touch is horrific. In other words, you and I were created to have that type of contact with one another but at the same time, we often abuse that kind of physical touch. We engage in invasive touch, unwanted touch. And in doing so, we end up harming one another. Abuse is one of the great silences that often never gets spoken about in church. That in this very sanctuary right now, many, many individuals and lives have been riddled by either the lack of loving touch or the harm of invasive touch. It is why, as we're going through this series, that we are talking about what it means to get close and how important it is for us to figure out how to do this so very carefully and so very well. And so we need not only the wisdom of modern science, we need the ancient wisdom of God's loving word in order to walk through this. And so we are going through some of the foundational passages of the book of Genesis. And while we're doing this, we're looking at it through the prism of relationships. In the first week, we talked about how you and I were hatched to attach, how we were made to connect with one another. And then last week, we talk about those little bids, those little invitations that we receive from God and from one another each and every day in order to be able to draw close to one another. But you can't do that without vulnerability. And this week, we're talking about those connections that can often lead to destruction. How can we get close to one another without hurting one another? How can we draw near to one another without destroying one another? 
And in order to do that, we're going to look at a famous passage. If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Now, a lot of the times we read the passage and I hear a lot of Bibles close and you set them aside or put them back in the rack in front of you. I'm going to ask you to hold this open. We're going to walk through this passage in a Bible study fashion because I think the story of Cain and Abel is incredibly well known, but not often explored. I believe that most people are familiar with the story of Cain and Abel, but they don't really know what's in and behind this incredible ancient yet revealing text on the way that we often hurt one another. And so we begin in verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And later, she gave birth to his brother. Now imagine this. This is the first human pregnancy. I mean, there's no book called What to Expect When You're Expecting at this point in time. So everything is new. Adam's watching Eve. Eve's watching Adam. Adam notices that Eve's eating a little more, that she's getting a little moodier, and that the old skin that God had made for her in Genesis chapter 3 the garment of clothing isn't fitting her the same way that it used to. And so John Ortberg says that Adam innocently walks up to Eve and says, maybe we can ask God to make you another set of clothes. This time we can use a buffalo or something. <laughs> this probably didn't go over so well. And so what we notice at the beginning of chapter 4, and we often just kind of blow right by this, right at the outset, is that it says here that in the passage that with the help of the Lord, Eve says this, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Did you notice that there's no Adam in that passage? And from hence on forward, Father's Day has always taken a back seat to Mother's Day. What we do know of what's going on here is that while they are together, they're not necessarily together. They're together, but they're not necessarily connected. And so we don't know whether it's the absence of Adam, whether or not in the midst of all of these changes that he's staying at an arm's length, or whether or not it's the over-independence of Eve where she feels like that she has to do this all by herself. And she's pushing Adam away. It could be some combination of both. What we do know is that all is not well here in the first human family. In fact, if we were to play a little bit of word association and I were to just say, when I say the word family, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you? There would be a variety, maybe an explosion of different emotions, thoughts, feelings, ideas that come to your mind. That when I say the word family, for some people, they think of the most nurturing and amazing, dynamic part of their lives. And yet for other people, they hear the word family and they think of the deepest pain that they have ever experienced. It seems that the human family is one of the most loaded terms in the world because it has the capacity for the greatest level of beauty and the biggest burdens that we carry. And so in this first human family, 
we're about to see the continual spiral down into destruction. Let's look at the second half of verse 2. Now Abel kept the flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of the time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. If you have your own Bible there, circle the word, some of the fruits of the soil. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. If you've got your own Bible, circle the word, firstborn. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. And so Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Here we see the beginnings of the first sibling rivalry that is going to be a continual theme throughout the Bible. There's Isaac and Ishmael, there's Jacob and Esau, there's Joseph and his brothers. There's a famous story in the New Testament where Jesus says there was a man who had two sons and those two sons did not get along very well together. I want to show you a picture of our girls back when we lived in the great state of Texas. Here's what they were at kind of three and four years old perfect little angels that they are. One day at about this age, we were uh, behind our house uh, at the neighborhood community pool, and they were playing in the pool, and both kids were jockeying for my full attention. Papa, pay attention to me. Dad, see what I'm doing over here. Watch me. And I was doing my best to try to evenly divide my time between both kids, paying attention to this kid when they performed, paying attention to that kid when that performed. And our youngest daughter, Ashby, did not like the fact that she was having to share the spotlight with her older sister. So she got a little frustrated, swam over to where her sister was, whacked her on the top of the head, went over to back where she was, and she goes, okay, Papa, watch me thinking that she had kind of removed that distraction from the situation. Siblings have been fighting and jockeying for position and attention for a long, long time. It's a concept that's actually fairly well explored in a very theological film called Boss Baby. And in this film, there is this rivalry between the older brother and this new baby that has come into the family. And I want to show you this 30-second clip that illustrates it. Let's watch the screens. There's only so much love to go around. It's like these beads. You used to have all your parents' love, all their time, all their attention. You had all the beads. But then I came along. Babies take up a lot of time. They need a lot of attention. They get all the love. We could share. You obviously didn't go to business school. You obviously didn't go to business school. I love that line. The point of the movie and the theme of the movie is that there's a fixed amount of love. There's a fixed amount of attention. And the question is, how are we going to divide all that up. What's behind that movie, what's behind all the sibling rivalries is a jealousy that's combined with a scarcity mindset, that there's only so much and that it's limited. And because of that, we get jealous or envious of the ways that others might be blessed. I want to be able to talk today about the way that this comparing actually 
destroys our lives. And I love the way that John Ortberg describes it when he says that this envy in our age is actually made worse by the use of technology. John Ortberg puts it like this. He says, another word for jealousy is envy. Envy is when I compare my life to somebody else's life and feel sad as a result. A number of studies have found that people become more depressed and anxious the more time they spend on social media. We see pictures of people having dinner together at some great restaurants and they're all laughing and we wonder, why didn't they invite me? I compare your Facebook life to my real life, which almost always leads to discouragement. It turns out that people are selective in what they post. We use technology to project an image of our lives that really isn't true. Remember when families would send out Christmas newsletters and it always seemed that their kids were all neurosurgeons and their dogs got into Harvard? Well, now we don't have to wait for Christmas to get discouraged. We simply have to check our Instagram feed and all of a sudden we're flooded with evidence of our comparative inferiority. She got married. They got to go there on vacation. I've never been there. Her job is that successful. He's having that much fun. Their kids got into that college. There's a great quote by Frederick Buechner that says, envy is the consuming desire to have everybody else as unsuccessful as you are. <laughs> Somebody should post that to Facebook. Envy is the consuming desire that everybody should be as unsuccessful as you are. It is this constant comparing of ourselves to what we don't know about other people that continues down the spiral of a lack of acceptance, discouragement, and despair. But why is it that Cain's offering wasn't accepted and Abel's offering was? Well, we actually don't have to guess. The Bible tells us here and it's echoed and we get more specific in the New Testament. The reason that we know this, and I had you think about circling those words in your own Bible, is that Cain offered some of his crops, while Abel offered the first fruits, the best, the fatty portions. And what the book of Hebrew tells us is that the difference between these two was a lack of faith. Don't miss this. Cain is the firstborn, and he feels like that he ought to receive the best, but he's not willing to give God the best. Cain feels entitled. Abel feels grateful. Cain is someone who is going through the motions of worship. Abel enters into the heart of worship. There's a vast difference between what these two have brought before God. In the Bible, uh, names are incredibly important. And the word for Cain means to get, to obtain, to acquire, to try to possess. Cain's whole life is about accumulation of getting more and more. And if he has to put someone down in the process, he will. Let's continue in the story in verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? 
But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Notice that this is a one-way dialogue here. That even though Cain is upset at his offering not be accepted, that God continues to send another invitation, another bid to Cain, still reaching out to him. But yet as God is reaching out to Cain, notice that Cain doesn't engage in dialogue with God. Here's the deal. The clearest indication of your relationship with God and your view of others is how you are managing your anger. Cain is not a victim in this story. It was not too late. There's a great deal of the back and forth here and the beauty of, of that, yes, there's this feeling, there's this desire, but you must rule over it. The Bible says, be angry, but do not sin. It's okay to experience the feeling of anger, but what you do with that emotion can often lead to destruction. And the Lord said to Cain in verse nine, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? In Genesis chapter 3, we talked about how there was that question where God, even in the midst of the fall, even after Adam and Eve had disobeyed, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? God is walking around in the garden looking for them. And yet, we discover here that now it's not only where are you, but also where is your brother? In other words, not only accountable for our own soul, our own life before God, but we're also accountable to be in community with one another for the way that we treat one another. And the most famous question in all of the Bible, am I my brother's keeper? Don't miss the fact of what really is going on here in context. Think of the occupations and the vocations of these two individuals. Cain, he's in the agricultural business. He's raising up the crops. Abel is in the livestock business. And if you're in the ancient livestock business, what do you spend the vast majority of your time doing? Keeping animals, shepherding animals. And so Cain is flipping this comment into God's face. Am I my brother's keeper? You think I'm like that? And yet this term here at the beginning of the Bible, being a keeper, is one of the most important terms to describe the activity of God and the way that we're called to be in community with one another. Psalm 121 says that the Lord is your keeper, that the Lord will keep the sun from striking by day, that the Lord will keep the moon at night, that the Lord will keep your foot from sleeping, that, that he will keep you from all evil, that he will keep your very life. The Lord will keep your going out and your going forth from this time on and forevermore. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your keeper. Am I my brother's keeper? We're called to be a community of keepers. 
What does this look like? David Brooks, who I quoted earlier, says it best. He says, it seems that the smarter we get about technology, the dumber we get about relationships. We seem to be treating each other worse. The guiding moral principle here is not complicated. Try to treat other people as if they possessed precious hearts and infinite souls. And I want you to linger on those terms for a few moments. Precious heart, infinite soul. Do you believe that your boss at work has a precious heart and an infinite soul? Do you believe that your sister has a precious heart and an infinite soul? Do you believe that your parent has a precious heart and an infinite soul? Do you believe that the people who serve you in the course of a day have a precious heart, an infinite soul? It's not rocket science. But we're to view our life through the lens of stewardship that you and I are called to be keepers. Here's the deal. There's a a binary approach in this text that I do not want you to miss. Genesis chapter 4 is saying that we are either one of two things. We are either killers or we are keepers, and there's no in-between. You are either trying to use people and put people down and move people out of your way for you to be able to get and attain and strive to wherever it is that you want to be, which leads to destruction, or you're a keeper that you view other people as having a precious heart and an infinite soul. It's one or the other. And I absolutely love the way that this story wraps up. Verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you were under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence and I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Don't miss the irony here. The killer wants a keeper. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then the Lord put what? It's up on the screen. A mark. A mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. What on earth is this mark? Back when I was in seminary, my Old Testament professor was a man by the name of Patrick Miller. And I remember him reading the story in class and saying, You know, the rabbis have an understanding through the Midrash, which is the ancient rabbinical interpretation of the Old Testament of what the mark of Cain was. 
And he goes, they never really thought a whole lot about it because the mark was seen as one of the letters of the alphabet, what was the last letter of the alphabet at the time, the Hebrew letter Tav. And this is what the Tav looks like in Hebrew. And so Patrick Miller said, I really didn't give this much thought until I was doing some other research when I realized that, yes, this is what the Tav looks like in modern Hebrew, but the Tav didn't always look like this, that it has evolved through the Hebrew language. This is what a Tav looked like, yes, after 600 BC, but before 600 BC, it looked like this. And if you want to chase the history of the letter, it actually looks like this. There on the left is what the ancient Tav looked like. It's the sign of the cross. And I don't think that that's a coincidence. That thousands and thousands of years before Christ, God marked Cain with the mark of guilt and the mark of grace. And I believe that it is only in the cross that brothers will embrace. I believe it is only in the cross that anger can melt into forgiveness. I believe it's only in the cross that the epidemic of loneliness will start to fade away, that it's only in the cross that we will stop the incessant comparing and envious behavior of one another, that it's only in the cross that we'll stop trying to put other people away in order to further our own future but that we'll start to cooperate and to actually become a community of keepers. That only happens ultimately through self-sacrificial love. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down your life for a friend. Earlier, I told you what Cain's name meant in Hebrew, but I didn't tell you what Abel's name meant. Cain means to acquire, to possess, to try to grab. Abel, Hevel in Hebrew means to breathe. But it's not like a deep breath. It's the word for vapor, a short breath. In other words, the life of Abel was here for a moment, and then it was gone. My friends, life is way too short and way too precious for us to waste it trying to figure out how to get ahead at the expense of loving one another. The warning of this story is that life is quick. And the question 
is what will you do with it? Let us pray. Thank you, God, for marking our lives with your grace. I want to pray now for the person who's in this room and whose life is boiling over with constant anger. For the one who's here whose desires are ruling over them instead of the other way around. I lift up to you, Holy Spirit, those people who have been wounded by invasive touch and those who know what it's like to lack intimate touch. Father, help us to become a community of keepers. Forgive us for trying to put others away or down so that we might attain and have. Help us to know not only in our heads but in our hearts that there's not a fixed amount of love in your kingdom and that there is no reason to be jealous. God, so often I compare what I know about myself to what I don't know about other people. Will you help me to see myself in the light of the way that you see me and to worship you with my whole heart instead of holding back? And we pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ and all of God's people said.